Good evening and welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. My name is Tom Switzer. Uh, I, uh, I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. Can I say from the outset that I'd like to acknowledge here in the presence here this evening uh, the former Prime Minister, John Howard. For those of you who aren't familiar with CIS, um, we are a public policy research organisation. We've been around since 1976, created by my predecessor, Greg Lindsay, who's also here this evening. Uh, CIS is primarily committed to promoting the principles of classical liberalism, so we believe profoundly in the idea of the individual, freedom of choice, a productivity enhancing reform, limited democratic government, religious freedom, um, and uh, not least, open and civilised debate. Uh, we hope to speak beyond that toxic polarisation that all too often characterises public discourses, not just in Canberra, but throughout the Western world. We also like to step back from the cut and thrust of politics in Canberra and put events, political events and public policy debates in a broader international context. And that brings me to this evening's event. We at CIS are absolutely thrilled and honoured uh, to be uh, hosting here this evening someone I regard as one of the world's greatest broadcast and print journalists. Andrew Neal is the presenter of several leading BBC television shows, including This Week and Politics Live. He's also the chairman of Press Holdings Media Group, uh, which publishes, among other fine publications, The Spectator magazine. And you can see copies of The Spectator magazine on your chair, as well as, of course, its sister publication, The Spectator Australia, which I had the great pleasure of editing for several years. Andrew Neal is also former editor of The Sunday Times. This is a news publication from 19... 83 to 1994. He's a founding chairman of Sky News. According to the Independent newspaper, Andrew Neal is, quote, a brilliant interviewer on top of his brief and never afraid to embarrass with a difficult question. And as I said before, he is such a master political interrogator, it's hardly surprising that senior coalition ministers in both Britain and this country run a million miles away from him. But we're not frightened to have him here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Andrew Neal. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Tom, thank you uh, for that introduction. My uh, father would have liked it, and my mother would have believed it. So I'm very <laughs> grateful to you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm slightly apprehensive as I appear uh, before you tonight because uh, the last time I was here, I uh, spoke in uh, Sydney. I think it was at the Sydney Institute. Uh, uh, and I thought I managed at least to get away with it, which is the best you could hope in these circumstances. But as I was leaving, a woman came up to me and said, Mr. Neil, your speech was absolutely superfluous. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you very much. Uh, and she said, tell me, is it going to be published? And I, being a smart-ass journalist, said, yes, but probably posthumously. <laughs> And she looked at me and said, I can hardly wait. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope to be a little bit better tonight. Uh, it's great to be back in Sydney, uh, particularly in this year of anniversaries. It's 250 years since Captain Cook set sail from the UK 
in a humble collier which had been used to bring coal from Whitby in the northeast of England to London and ending up here in the east coast of what became Australia. It's 230 years since Captain Phillips arrived in what we now call Sydney Harbour. And of course, most important of all, as I'm sure you can all agree, it's 10 years since we launched Spectator Australia. <laughs> Nurtured to strength by the wise hand of Tom Switzer and now in rude health under <laughs> Rowan Dean. Uh, indeed, I'm here to do a number of events to, to celebrate because we've achieved what was thought to be as impossible as operating a wind farm without government subsidies. <laughs> yes, in the digital age, we have created a print magazine that makes a profit. And uh, one of the other reasons I'm here is that we plan to expand in 2019 and build on our success. Now, of course, these are prodigious times for a political magazine. As I prepared for my trip here and did my homework, as my mother always told me that I should, uh, I sometimes wondered if I was heading for Italy rather than Australia. Uh, and now that I'm here, I have to pinch myself that I am on the banks of Sydney Harbour and not on the banks of the Tiber, though both seem to be foaming with much political blood these days. Uh, perhaps this sense, though, as I as an outsider would say to you tonight, the sense of Australian politics as a Shakespearean drama with periodic backstabbing, perhaps it's overdone. I think it is true to say that six prime ministers in 10 years may be regarded as somewhat excessive. And for the, your two main parties to have had nine leaders in 10 years may be regarded as excessive too. I mean, you have succeeded in turning the Italians into also rans in the <laughs> rotating prime minister stakes. But it isn't unprecedented. Uh, between the foundation of the Commonwealth in 1901 and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, you had 10 prime ministers. Uh, Robert Menzies, probably for someone from Britain, other than, of course, John Howard, the most famous Australian prime minister, uh, was forced to resign in 1951, sorry, 1941, when you stood with us against the Nazis and the Nazis' allies. And it seems that war makes no difference as to when you want to get rid of a prime minister. <laughs> Between 1966 and 1972, at the height of, America, of Australian involvement in the Vietnam War, you managed to go through six prime ministers. So clearly, being a prime minister uh, in Australia is not for those who value job security. <laughs> But I wonder if you stand back and put Australia into a more international context, whether Australian politics is that unique, or whether indeed you are any more dysfunctional than many other major democracies today. Indeed, in some ways, perhaps you are less uh, uh, dysfunctional. Uh, I would argue that you are no more dysfunctional than the politics of Westminster, of Washington, that's an easy case to make, uh, <laughs> Paris, or Berlin, or Rome. Indeed, in many cases, I would argue that you are less dysfunctional. For example, your two major parties, on the centre-left and the centre-right, are still your two major parties. 
one of them will form a government after the next election, just as one of them forms the current government. That is not so in France. It's not so in Italy. Some parties in other democracies have either gone by the board or have survived by changing out of all recognition. In France, the center-left socialist party and the center-right gaullist party barely exist anymore, barely exist. That would be like the Labour Party and the Liberal Party in this country no longer existing. On election night in Paris in May of last year, when I was there covering uh, the election, uh, it was a beautiful uh, spring night, and I walked from my hotel to the Champs-Élysées where we were doing our broadcast. I walked past the socialist headquarters. It was closed, no lights on, no security outside. I walked past the Gaullist headquarters. It was closed, no security outside, no lights on. They didn't even participate in the second round of the French presidential election. And since that presidential election, the Socialist Party in France is down to 6%, and the Republican Party, which is the center-right party, is at 14% in the polls and about to change its leader again. In Italy, the same thing has happened. The Christian Democrats, who ran Italy uh, for most of the 60 years after the Second World War, no longer exist. The Socialist Party in Italy has gone the way of the French Socialist Party and of the Greek Socialist Party, which no longer exists either. So to that extent, Australian politics still has a sense of uh, recognition about it in a way that these other democracies don't. And it's true that in other countries, major parties have survived. But some of them have survived, as I've said, by changing out of all recognition from what they were. The Republicans, which have only survived in America, because they've gone through a hostile takeover by Donald Trump. Or the British Labour Party, which has survived and not gone the way of other social democratic parties in Europe, but only because it's been taken over by its first ever neo-Marxist leader and is out of all recognition to what the Labour Party was under Mr. Brown or Mr. Blair. Your parties, however, still straddle the mainstream, which cannot be said of many well-established anymore. Uh, more important, I would argue, and a sign that you may not be as dysfunctional as you think, is I can detect no sign, you may can tell me, put me right, of any rise of what I would call the nativist hard right in Australia. I don't see that coming uh, through. I know that you've had the One Nation uh, Party and uh, Pauline Hanson, but that seems rather yesterday rather than today. I don't see the rise of a nativist hard right taking place in Australia. Uh, and yet, the nativist hard right is rampant across Europe and even in government in many other European uh, democracies. And again, I think that is a sign of the dysfunction of other democracies, a dysfunction that you here in Australia don't have. And I'd like just to dwell a bit on what's been happening there, because in some ways, it is the most important political democratic development of our time. After Brexit in the summer of 2016 and the election of Mr. Trump in 2016, Europe feared that that populist wave that had produced Brexit and produced Mr. Trump, both of them uh, predicted not to happen by all mainstream pundits, 
and by all the opinion polls as well, that Europe was in for some trouble. And yet it looked for a while as if Europe was going to get a get-out-of-jail card. In March of 2017, Geert Wilders in Holland did not do as well as he hoped to, and Mr. Rutte, the mainstream prime minister, remained prime minister. The mainstream parties lost. Wilders did quite well, but not enough for a breakthrough. And then came the biggest hope of all, where Mr. Macron swept all before him in the French presidential election, not only winning two to one in the second round of the French presidential elections, but getting a landslide majority for a party that hadn't even existed a year ago in the French parliament. And the European establishment breathed a sigh of relief and thought that the Macron uh, spring was a sign that Europe had dodged the bullet, that the kind of populist tendencies that had given us Brexit and given us uh, Mr. Trump weren't going to happen, that it was going to be business as usual. But actually, that turned out to be wrong. It turned out that populism, particularly of the right-wing variety, uh, hadn't peaked. Because since the Macron spring in May of 2017, we've had a number of developments that suggest that hard-right nativist populism is on the move in Europe. The AFD, which is a pretty hard-right German party, began by taking seats in the state parliaments of Germany in the summer and early autumn. And then it took a record 94 seats in the German federal elections in the Bundestag. 94. That is the equivalent of having 60 hard-right MPs in the British House of Commons. There isn't one. Equivalent of 60. 94 seats in the Bundestag went to the hard-right. So many that it made it very difficult for Mrs. Merkel to form a coalition government. It took her three months, almost four, in which she had to reignite her contract with the Social Democrats in another grand coalition. And as a consequence, made the AFD the main party of opposition. The main party of opposition in Germany today is on the hard right. If that's not dysfunctional, I don't know what is. Then the hard right was returned to government in Norway. Norway, a social democratic country since the end of the Second World War. They entered the Czech parliament. They took power this year in Italy, a coalition of hard right populists and hard left populists has formed the government in Rome today. A coalition of hard left and hard right. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> that is pretty dysfunctional. They polled well in Slovenia, where we're waiting on an election. They are back up in the polls in Holland, where they got 15% in the election. They're now on 22. Speaking of the hard right, Mr. Putin was re-elected in Moscow. There's a surprise. Spain has not had a problem with the hard right or the hard left, but it's going through its worst political crisis in 40 years. Mrs. Merkel has been greatly weakened and indeed is among the walking wounded now and is uh, living on borrowed time. Mr. Macron, the great hope of the moderate Macron spring, his personal ratings are now below Donald Trump's, which is quite an achievement. <laughs> Social democratic parties are in crisis across Europe. 
And this Sunday, there is an election in Sweden. And I know that that is not necessarily of huge international importance, except in a way it is, because it is possible that the party that comes first in the election on Sunday will be the Sweden Democrats, not the Social Democrats, the Sweden Democrats, a hard-right anti-immigration nativist <coughs> party. Now, when that happens in a prosperous country like Sweden, which has always been a byword for moderate center-left progress, you know something dysfunctional is happening in other democracies that is a lot more dysfunctional, I would argue, than anything that has happened to you here in Australia. All polls in Europe now show immigration and terrorism are the top two issues. The economy and the GDP and economic well-being, which traditionally dominated all elections, you got re-elected if living standards were rising, you got kicked out if living standards were falling. They don't determine elections uh, anymore. Identity, security, the level of migration, a sense of, being, of things being out of control, they now determine elections. If the Sweden Democrats, which, by the way, polled 1.4%, in 2002, they're currently polling 20%. If they get 20% or over in the Sunday election, it will be happening at a time when Sweden has full employment, rising standards of living, the world's third best health service, and basically a cradle-to-grave welfare state. And a sense, and real wages, unlike here or in Britain, real wages have been rising quite rapidly. And yet, because of issues of migration and identity and fear of terrorism too, it is possible that the Sweden Democrats will come out, if not the largest party, I'm pretty sure they will certainly be the second largest party. Now, they won't form a government, but that in itself could be a problem because if they don't, they'll say, we won, but you won't let us into power. Just wait till the next election. And so it's not determined. We've always thought that these kind of parties from the far left or the far right got into power because of economic hard times, got into power because people felt they weren't getting a fair shake. rather important reasons. One is that you've not had a recession for 27 years. You now hold the world record for continuous growth of any major economy. Even the Lehman crash in 2008, you managed to shrug off. It was a setback. But our GDP declined by 6%. America's GDP declined by 6% in 2009. The Eurozone went into a downward spiral. Your growth slowed down a bit, but never did you move in to a recession. And this crash of 2008, 
which of course affected you, but nothing like Europe or America, has had a long tail. And it's been a slow burn because a combination of prolonged austerity and stagnant wages, much longer than anybody thought, has resulted in some of this political backlash that I've been talking about. To begin with, people thought, yep, we need to tighten our belts. Yep, this is clearly a major change. It's not going to be easy for a couple of years. They did not think that eight years on, their wages in real terms still wouldn't have risen. They didn't think that 60% of Greek youngsters would still be unemployed, 40% of Italian youngsters, 35% of French youngsters, 30% of Spanish youngsters would still be unemployed. It's had a long, slow tail, very different from the crash of 1929, which had an almost immediate political impact. The crash of 29 then had an economic impact by 1930. By 1932, FDR had swept to power in a landslide. By 1933, Mr. Hitler had come to power in Germany, and Mr. Mussolini had consolidated his power in Italy. To begin with, nothing seemed to change in Europe. Mr. Obama was re-elected in 2012. Uh, David Cameron won uh, an election and formed a coalition with the Liberals in 2010. Mrs. Merkel was re-elected in Germany. Uh, Mr. Berlusconi continued in Italy. Mr. Hollande carried on in France. But then, because the austerity continued, because there was a sense that things were not getting better despite the belt tightening, the political backlash came. And that backlash was exacerbated by two trends within it, none of which you have quite been subject to. One was the quantitative easing, the electronic printing of money, which the Reserve Bank of Australia has not done. My own view was essential because the fiscal response to the recession had to be, was difficult because budget deficits were already very extended and national debt was already very high in most of these economies. So the central bank, starting with the Federal Reserve in America, then with the Bank of Japan, then the Bank of England, finally with the ECB, began the electronic printing of money to buy government bonds and put cash onto the balance sheets of the banks and other financial institutions to spend. My view is that it was essential to do that. But it had a consequence, an unforeseen consequence, perhaps an unavoidable consequence, but a consequence of huge political import. And it was this. If you already owned assets, houses, equities, bonds, they zoomed up in value as QE poured into these assets, way beyond the countries in which the QE was being uh, uh, generated. And so if you were asset rich, you were doing fine. But if you weren't asset rich and dependent on a wage, your wage was stagnant. So people had assets, were fine. People who depended on a wage week in, week out, felt hard done by. And that added to a sense of injustice. And then the second trend in this was that the people who felt the injustice most were those who felt that they had not been the cause of the crash in 2008. They were just the ordinary workers. They are not the ones uh, that had run the banks. They are not the ones that invented derivatives. They are not the ones that sliced and diced dodgy assets and gave it 
a triple A rating. They had just got on with their jobs. And they were still suffering eight years on. And yet the people who had caused the crash, who had been behind all this, not one was prosecuted. Not one was brought to justice. Unlike the savings and loan scandal in America in the 1980s when there were 1,100 convictions, not one Wall Street or London banker was prosecuted for what happened. Indeed, because of QE, and as they picked themselves up, these people were richer than ever, doing better than ever. The people who had caused the crash, and yet the people who hadn't caused the crash were still struggling to make ends meet. And I think when you see and take into account that slow burn, that long tail of the Lehman Brothers crash in 2008, you have many of the reasons why Mr. Salvini is Deputy Prime Minister in Italy, why Britain voted for Brexit, why Mr. Trump is now in the White House, and why even though she lost, Marine Le Pen got 33% of the vote in the second round of the French presidential election, twice as much as her father got in 2002, and why there are now pretty hard-right governments in power in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And I think the second reason why you have not been hit by this is because, and I know there's still a debate about immigration, about numbers, and so on, but that debate, it seems to me, takes place within the context that you are seen to be in control of your own borders, that who comes in here is overwhelmingly a matter for you, and for you to set the numbers and to set the criteria by which people can come to this country. And I know there was a huge argument about the, the so-called boat people and about the camps and all the rest of it. But it takes place within a context that, that, that somehow, uh, even if it's controversial with some people, you are in control of the migration process. It may leak at the edges. There's an argument, are they too many? Are they too few? What is the kind? But it's your decision. They come in your terms. That's not been so in the United Kingdom because of free movement of peoples uh, from the rest of Europe. It's not been so in Greece as people from the Middle East have poured in or Italy or Germany or in America or even now in Sweden, which per capita took in 165,000 migrants from very different culture than Sweden's traditional culture, the highest per capita number of immigrants of any European country, even higher because of the population difference than Mrs. Merkel's Germany, who took in almost a million. So the sense grew, rightly or wrongly, that the politicians couldn't control their borders. The sense grew that at a time when it was pretty difficult anyway, almost anybody could seem to come into the country. And the politicians weren't able to stop it. Now, in some cases, factually, that wasn't true. But that was the public perception. And it added to a sense that the mainstream traditional politicians were not in control. And I think if you wrap up all these things together, things that have not really affected Australia, you see why the rise in particular of the hard right, but also why so many major European democracies are now quite dysfunctional. In France, I mentioned that Madame Le Pen 
got a third of the vote, which is quite remarkable to think that a third of a democracy voted for essentially a neo-fascist party. I mean, you used to think about that for a minute in 2017. And since then, the center-right and center-left parties have failed to come back. The two main opposition parties in France now are a party called the Insurgents and Soumise, led by Mr. Mélenchon on the hard left, and Madame Le Pen, who's rebranded the National Front, the National Rally. So that makes us feel much better uh, <laughs> on the right. And indeed, for broadcasters in France, it's become a major problem now because they need to put people up against Macron. But the old Socialist Party and the old Republican Party are kind of irrelevant. So the main opposition on television is from Anne Soumise and Mr. Mélenchon and from Madame Le Pen. And of course, that becomes self-reinforcing because if these are the opposition voices on television, in people's minds, these are the opposition to Mr. Macron. So that's pretty dysfunctional. In Germany, as I've already said, the AFD has now uh, got 93 seats in the Bundestag, 94 if you include one person who has stepped down but is still nominally a member. Uh, they control three of the four major committees in the Bundestag, and they are probably about to do very well in the Bavarian elections, which could blow up the coalition, because in Germany, the CSU, which is Mrs. Merkel's right-wing party from Bavaria, they have always controlled Bavaria. They take a harder line in immigration. If they still lose, they won't lose, but if the AFD does very well, they will insist that Mrs. Merkel gets a lot tougher or they will walk out. The Visegrad group of countries are now a threat to Brussels. That's Poland, Czech Republic, uh, and Hungary. They're basically at war with the Brussels Commission, again, on the hard right. Italy, as I've explained, uh, has got a populist left and right government together. They are about to announce a budget which will break every EU rule book that there is. Uh, they are going to introduce a national uh, income, basic income for everybody, and they are going to introduce a, base, a, a flat rate of tax. The short-run consequences of that will be probably to increase the Italian deficit to 6% of GDP, which breaks every rule in the book. They have said that if Brussels tries to stop them doing it, they will introduce a parallel currency. They won't leave the euro. They'll introduce a parallel currency called the mini-bot. Uh, the, the bot, B-O-T, is a two-year Italian bond. They'll introduce mini-bots with denominations of 1, 5, and 10 euros, and they'll put it out as a parallel currency. Uh, out of control of the European Central Bank. That sounds pretty dysfunctional to me. And thinking of dysfunction, let me come to Brexit. Uh, I think Remainers and Leavers would all have to admit that this has proved to be much tougher than anybody thought. And I think that Mrs May never quite recovered from her disastrous election campaign of uh, the summer of 2017 in which she lost what majority she had and did not get a mandate for any particular type of Brexit. Which means that again and again Brussels has played hardball and again and again Brussels has pretty much won. The strategic aim of the European Union has been twofold in the Brexit negotiations. One was to make it so difficult, so tough and so unpleasant that nobody else tries to leave the European Union. And although Euroscepticism is very strong, 
even Mr. Salvini in Italy or Mr. Orban in Hungary are not saying they should leave the European Union. So to that extent, that looks to have succeeded. The other uh, aim of the European Union has to be to try to make sure that no alternative economic model takes off 20 miles north of Calais in the fifth largest economy of the world. Because that terrifies them that an alternative and potentially successful economic model could be so close to mainland Europe, which is why, again, they've played such hardball. And the, it's interesting that they're worried about two alternative models. The most common one you may have heard is that we become uh, sort of Singapore West, that we become a low taxation, uh, low regulation economy and do well. They hate the thought of that. But they're equal, equally worried that a Corbyn government could turn Britain into a sort of Cuba East. <laughs> and the reason that worries them is that it would involve protection, capital controls, and massive state ownership and state subsidies of industry. And that isn't just the policy of the European left. That's the policy of the European hard right. That's the policy of Madame Le Pen. That's the policy of the AFD. That's the policy of Mr. Salvini in Italy. So they don't want that to happen either. And so far, they've been pretty successful. The British government's strategic aim, well, I'm paid to try and find it out, but I have to tell you tonight, <laughs> I cannot find what it is, except now just to try and get out. Mrs. May, with the Chequers Agreement, has agreed or has proposed an arrangement whereby, in terms of goods, we effectively stay inside the European Union, that we would follow all forms of regulation, all ways of doing things would conform to EU rules. Services, we try and go a different way. It would also be true for agriculture as well. Uh, what the end of this is, I don't know, but what, what they're trying to, to do, they're trying to frighten the rest of the Conservative Party into saying, if you don't go along with this, then you may not get Brexit at all. And we're now in a situation where it's not clear that there's a majority in the House of Commons for any alternative. It is pretty clear now that if Mrs. May was to bring in the Chequers Agreement as the done deal, or, or certainly to water it down more as a result of the negotiations, there would not be a majority for that in the House of Commons. Now, legally, what then happens is that we revert to no deal at all. That's the legal position. But in my view, with the House of Commons, five, six of which don't want no deal, they will not let that happen. So we don't know what then goes next. A period of huge uncertainty, with the end game not certain. A second referendum, unlikely, but don't rule it out. I think what might save the British, ironically, in this is Europe. Because as Europe looks at what else is on its agenda, a troublesome Visegrad group to the east, a populist coalition in Rome, now getting 62% in the polls, by the way, a need to do something about Eurozone reform, but Mr. Macron and Mrs. Merkel can't agree because the Eurozone is in no shape to weather another recession. Indeed, the political fallout could be horrendous if the Eurozone went into recession now. Threats of a trade war from Mr. Trump in the White House, they need a messy Brexit like a hole in the head. And I think Mrs. Merkel, as it moves out of the commission in Brussels, 
back to the heads of state, to the Council of Europe, I think you might find that Mrs. Merkel and Mrs. Uh, Mr. Macron and Mrs. Merkel between them might in some way save the British bacon and cannot come up with an acceptable Brexit, acceptable to Brussels, to Paris, Berlin, and uh, to the United Kingdom. But we don't know, and we don't know how the Commons is going to vote. Let me finish up by coming back to Australia. I hope I've said enough to make you realize that though you are a bit dysfunctional, <laughs> uh, you're not as dysfunctional as a lot of other democratic systems. It seems to me as an outsider looking in that the combination of a strong Senate here, I think you probably have the most powerful upper house of any democracy in the world, uh, plus a lower house of three-year terms. I don't know whose bright idea that was. <laughs> but anyway, you've got three-year terms. That makes for instability. Uh, political instability. Now, again, I may be wrong, but I don't sense that there's any great appetite for constitutional change in either of these matters. So I think you have to live with it. There are consequences, I think, for what's been happening here. I think it's, it seems to me it is now harder in this country to take long-term decisions and stick with them. That is why the response to the drought, I suspect, has been disappointing and lacking in a long-term decision. I don't, as I understand it, there are no great plans to build any more snowy dams, maybe to tinker, but I think the, 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 the ability to take longer-term decisions and stick with it is more difficult if you're changing prime minister every year or every second year. And then on energy policy. Uh, I always thought that Britain, close alongside with Germany, had probably the worst energy policy in the world. That was before I came here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it takes genius of a very special nature to be probably the energy richest and resources country in the world and have the highest electricity <laughs> prices in the world. I mean, you have to congratulate somebody to achieve, achieve that. And again, I think the difficulty of a system which you try to go for short-term gain, you try to go for short-term advantage, to stand back and take the more difficult decisions that energy policy would require I think has proved to be difficult. And if there's only one danger I would see in which you may be infected at the margins by the kind of things I've been talking about in other democracies, which I think are much more dysfunctional than yours, is this. I think it is quite dangerous when you have a combination of stagnant wages, which is what you've had in this country for some time, despite an incredibly successful economy, Wages have not been rising any faster than inflation, sometimes low, and rising energy prices, which hit the poorest most of all and ordinary people most of all. So if real wages are not rising, but energy bills are soaring through the roof, as I understand it, electricity in this city is twice the cost of New York. At Queensland energy prices, I think, are a third higher than Texas. That is a dangerous combination. There are some things people can't do without. One of them is energy, to heat in winter, for air conditioning in a climate like this in the summer. If they're rising and their wages are not, that, I think, in the margins runs the risk of a change in opinion, particularly among blue-collar workers who may feel the Labour Party doesn't represent them anymore, and a Liberal Party that hasn't particularly represented them anymore in recent years either. That That is a danger I think you might face, but it's at the margins. And I think it's a sign of this country's great optimism that even in the difficulties of changing the prime minister yet again, that to prove that in this country, 
Even great political difficulties are, can be seen as an opportunity or as a plus. I was very taken by the fire department in Tasmania, which said that although it is a bit uh, annoying that we keep changing prime ministers, it does mean that when we do change a prime minister, it is a sign for everybody to change the batteries in their smoke alarms. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very much. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrew Neil, for that refreshing and sober uh, speech. <laughs> um, let, let me clarify the first half of your remarks. Your argument is that because we've had 27 years of uninterrupted growth yeah. and we've had a, a border protection system that uh, boosts public support uh, for our immigration system, that means that the, uh, we've avoided the kind of populist insurgencies that are upending establishments across the rest of the West. That's your argument, isn't it? That's right. How would you respond to the argument, and this is the media and intellectual conventional wisdom, mm. that uh, because of all this leadership change, because of our political leaders' failure to decarbonise the economy, because of our illegal and immoral refugee policies, because of the polarising and toxic nature of the right-wing base of the Liberal Party, we are somehow a global laughingstock. You'll often hear this in Fairfax, the ABC, the Saturday paper, the Guardian Australia. Your response? I've never heard anybody laughing at Australia. <laughs> never. Everybody has huge regard for Australia. If they were laughing at me, why are they all queuing up to try and come here? Mm. <laughs> you know, people vote with their feet. They're not trying to queue up to get into Azerbaijan. <laughs> you know, they're not queuing up to get into Mr. Putin's Moscow either. Of course, there's still plenty of room for debate. I'm well aware there's still a lively debate about immigration. Mm. I understand that is an issue that still divides you. But it doesn't divide you and is not the toxic issue that it is in, in European countries or that it became in the United States. You know, Mr. Obama's immigration policy was basically to leave the border open and then round mm. a couple of million Mexicans up and shove them back over the border. Mm. That's not a credible uh, uh, policy. I know that there have been problems with the camps too. It's not for me to take a position in this. And I know there are arguments among the Australian voters as to what the level should be. But I tell you, it is n nothing like the toxic level of the debate about immigra immigration in Europe, uh, mm. which has produced the hard right, or in some cases, the hard left as well. Uh, even to the extent that the one of the abiding arguments in, or debates in Britain is about the extent of anti-Semitism in the British Labour Party. Mm. I mean, who would ever have thought that could come? I mean, I have Jewish friends who are, for the first time, are thinking they may have to leave the country. I mean, there's one woman I know. She keeps her bag packed. Well, we will open up to questions in a few moments, and we can talk more about your thesis about Australia, which is a refreshing argument, because you'll all too often, you know, the media will feed us a, a daily diet of doom and gloom about how bad things mm. are, but they very rarely put things in a broader international context. So we'll get back to that. Brexit... Do you think uh, it's been two, more than two years now since the British people since voted? Since the referendum. Yeah, yes, right. Uh, so it's been more than two years since they voted to leave, the, leave uh, the European Union. Do you think that they felt that there'd be so many strings attached to Brexit? No, and I don't think Remainers or Leavers did. I mean, I covered the referendum, did all the major interviews with all the, the leaders of Remain and Leave, and no one ever said there would be a divorce bill. No one said we'd be paying 40 billion to leave. That came as a bit of a surprise uh, to everybody. 
no one thought it would be so difficult to negotiate an alternative to the single market. Nobody thought the British government would be so weak. I mean, mm -hmm. I think the problem has been that doing Brexit, whether right or wrong is not for me to say, but doing it even with a strong government, with a mandate that was united and knew what it wanted the end game to be, even then it would be difficult for the reasons I gave that the Europeans have their own strategic mm. goals. We have none of the above, and therefore it has been much more difficult. I don't think it therefore follows that the appetite is going back to remain. Indeed, I think there's a danger in that, in, in that, in that if we're going to tell the British people that for the first time in living memory, when they basically voted against the establishment, that they have to vote again, I think the backlash could be quite huge. You know, we talk about the, the, there's, go, the, the, there's an economic uh, price to pay for leaving. And there may be, the short-term forecast turned out to be totally wrong uh, on, on that. They said we would lose, Mr. Osborne said we'd lose half a million jobs. We've added half a million jobs. So he was slightly out on that. That's probably why he's no longer <laughs> chancellor, uh, like Mr. Hockey. Um, <laughs> they said we go into recession. We've, we've not gone into re recession. The longer-term forecast, we don't know yet, because yeah. we're, we're not there. Uh, so they haven't come through. But they, we've nevertheless said that there could be an economic price Well, that's pay, right. I was going to say. But there could be an even bigger democratic price okay, to pay but if you make the British people fight this again. On the economic front, in fairness to the Remainers, they will argue that Airbus, a Jaguar Land Rover, Philips, among other companies, have all announced that they will scale back investments in Brisbane if there's not a deal replicating the current trade relationship with Brussels. Surely that's a huge concern. In Brisbane. In Britain, sorry. Brisbane <laughs> <laughs> on the brain. <laughs> Don't start. I just, I just suddenly think that Captain Cook and Captain Phillips had come back again. <laughs> so we'll have that one. But they're sun. huge concerns, Andy. Yeah, of course. But they are the consequence of uncertainty. Because they, and I don't blame them. I don't think it's hard to blame people not taking a major investment decision when you don't know what the terms of trade will be. All of these businesses, Airbus, Jaguar, they depend on, on uh, just-in-time supply chains and on international supply chains where parts will go back and forward across the border six, seven, ten times. So until they see the nature of that, they're right to hold. They thought that by now they would see the nature of it. And it is quite remarkable that here we are, what, now in September? We are due legally to leave by the end of March. We still don't know. And that is not Europe's fault. That is the problem the British government faced. And Mrs. May knew, which is why she kept on kicking the ball into touch all the time or into the long grass, was that she knew she could kick the party united as long as she didn't come out with an end game. <laughs> the moment she came out with an end game, it began to fall apart. And that, that's been the difficulty. And that's what's led to the rise of the sort of Tory grassroots against yes. May. Yeah. In recent weeks and months, uh, several distinguished Brits, including the former Conservative Prime Minister John Major, uh, the Labor Prime Minister Tony Blair, they've joined forces to call for a second yes. referendum on Brexit. Is that really conceivable? Yes, I think it is. I still think it's like unlikely. I still like... You know, you have to be careful what you say because almost everything's wrong these days. Uh, <laughs> and we live in a world where the unlikely quite often is exactly what happens. You know, like Mr. Trump was unlikely or Brexit was unlikely. Uh, but I do think it's still unlikely. But if the House of Commons, you see, 
What I can't work out, and I was on the phone late last night because Parliament is back in London mm. now, we can't see a majority for anything in the current House of Commons. And even if you change the leader, and there's a growing head of steam now for Mrs. May to go, uh, either before Brexit is over or the moment Brexit is after. I mean, her position is now more... One of the changes has been before the since the summer is that she's in a much more precarious position. Before she came out with the, the Chequers ag agreement, which is, by the way, only a so-called agreement within the government. Mm -hmm. it's not, they've not still got to agree with Brussels. Brussels exactly. Uh, you yeah. know, which is a long way, way off. Uh, what, one of the, the, the feeling was, let's stick with Mrs. May until we get some sort of agreement done. Okay. Now they're thinking, well, this agreement is not acceptable, so she's going to have to go sooner. There's a good uh, Glaswegian expression of Mrs. May at the moment, which is that her jacket is hanging by a sugarly peg. <laughs> and I will translate that for you, which is that her jacket has been hung up on a peg on the wall which is not stuck to the, the wall very firmly, and it could fall off at any moment, a sugarly peg. And it could be she'll be gone by Christmas or certainly gone very soon after Brexit happens. Uh, there was a time when they thought Downing Street, that if they got through Brexit, it would be a great achievement that she would have a case for saying, look, I've delivered this. I've done a great thing. I've got as I, I was even a Remainer, but I've done it. I should fight the next election. I just don't think that's going okay, to so happen. Okay, so just to now. clarify, if May, the Prime Minister, can't get an agreement with Brussels on the Chequers Agreement and she can't get it through the Parliament, mm. what happens then? Well, it, what would happen is it would still be possible is if she can't get an agreement, the legal position is we default to no deal. That's the legal that we leave at the end of March with no deal, and we fall back on WTO rules. That's right. But my that's the legal position. But as lots of people in this room will know, and John Howard will know very well, uh, legal and the politics are an entirely different thing. I find it inconceivable that a House of Commons that is five-sixths against no deal would allow no deal to happen. Mm. And that's where you could see a move to have another referendum. What I can't see is, what's the question going to be in that referendum? That's right. Very good question. <laughs> I don't know what the question's going to be. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. I think John Howard knows about yeah. that. <laughs> what's the question? So, and I think this adds to the uncertainty and, and yes. why, you know, I interviewed Airbus. And it, it was clear Airbus had no desire to go. There's no one else in the world makes the wings for Airbus mm. the way we do. Mm -hmm. uh, Jaguar Land Rover wants to stay in Britain as well. It's a huge success story, unlike the British car industry uh, uh, was in the 1970s, which was a basket case. But if you can't see the future ahead, if you're mm. being asked to invest a billion dollars in a new car plant or a new production line, you need to know the terms of trade on which, under which you'll be doing it. And I think that is holding things up at the OK, moment. the second referendum. Uh, Rod Little, cover story of the UK Spectator last week. Rod Little, of course, right. is a, one of your leading columnists. And he paraphrases the views of those who want a second referendum. He says, the people who voted leave are all thick and didn't know what they were voting for. Uh, let's hear from a constituent uh, from a Labor Party electorate. Uh, it's the electorate of Wakefield. This is in Northern England. She's addressing the BBC's Question Time, which is the equivalent of the ABC's Q&A. We knew what we voted for in leaving the EU. Why are Remainers 
making out constantly that we are uneducated people that didn't understand Brexit and what we were doing. Yeah. I <laughs> And obviously that's, that's what you feel. I'm not an uneducated person. Um, I'm sure a lot of the people who voted to leave, we, we knew, I read everything, I looked into everything. It's how I felt and I did the old fashioned pros and cons in writing and I wanted to leave. And, but people now are making out as if we're uneducated, as if we don't know what we were doing. And I just think they need to stop doing that. Now, seven out of ten Labor constituencies voted for Brexit. Mm. You heard that lady there, a Labor lady from a Labor mm. constituent, Andrew Neil. Well, as I said to you this morning, <coughs> the most significant part of that clip, which is not unrepresentative of question time when it goes to the north of England, is that that woman has a north of England accent. Mm. So this is very much a kind of the provinces against the metropolitan, which is a huge uh, growing identity division in democracies, including in this country, as I understand it, but across the world, of metropolitan versus provincial, uh, big city versus smaller cities and country areas. And that's why I would say, again, it's not for me to call, but the, the remain of you is that if we could only get a second referendum, the whole Brexit process has been such a mess that there'll be buyer's remorse uh, and we will vote to stay in the second time. That may be true. You will never know until it's tried. My warning to them is maybe you shouldn't you'd be so keen to get what you wish for because it could equally go the other way. The people like that woman will, will say, well, you would never have made us vote again if it had been 52-48 to remain. You are just simply trying to ignore us because you didn't get your way. Mm. Uh, we, we think you've made a mess of Brexit, but we still want to leave. And you could end up with an even bigger majority for leaving. So I think it's you're in an uncharted territory there. And of course, although the Remainers would play all the, you know, there are, the British people, the polls show overwhelmingly they think the government's doing a bad job of the Brexit process. Uh, but the Leave side would also have all these project fear forecasts that they made that didn't come to pass. Mm. And so I wouldn't rule out you would get a bigger majority. Now, you've been following British politics closely for more than four decades. Um, you were the editor of the Sunday Times uh, during the Tory civil war over the Maastricht Treaty, the European Treaty, 1992. Have you seen anything like these polarising times in modern history? Yeah, I, uh, I don't think it's actually that polarised. I think there's a different problem. Uh, I think lots of Europe is polarised, continental Europe. In the United States? The United States is definitely polarized. Uh, and we've seen that with the way the Democrats are now moving left mm. as the mm. Republicans mm. have moved mm. right. The center looks a pretty forlorn place in America at the moment. The woman has just unseated the Democratic primary candidate from the left, has just unseated the uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, acolytes of Bernie Sanders. Yep. And, and mm. to the left of Bernie, mm -hmm. actually, mm. in some, mm. in some Rocky. cases. <laughs> I think in Britain it's different. There's no question Mr. Corbyn is way to the left of any other previous Labour leader, though the Labour Parliamentary Party is still pretty centrist. The British Conservatives are still pretty centrist. Mm. They're not way out on the right. So I don't think it's polarising. And, and, you know, even on the, the Brexit thing, the, the people we have in the media are polarised because they're the true believers. You know, we have to leave. No, we have to remain. They're the ones that feel it. 
most people didn't feel that strongly about it one way or another. Uh, another. And even a lot of Remainers now think, can we not just get on with it? Mm. We've had the vote. I'm fed up. I'll give you an example. In Scotland, which voted two to one to remain, we all thought, and Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister in Scotland, thought, I, I thought she was right, that, that given that Scotland is only leaving because English votes overwhelmed the Scottish vote to remain, that that would move the dial for independence. And yet it hasn't moved mm. the dial at all. Mm. There's no desire for a second referendum on independence. There's no change in the polls for a second, for, for if we did vote again on independence. And it could be that outside the sort of Westminster bubble where people really feel strongly, people voted one way or they voted another, but it wasn't a life or death decision for mm. them. And that they don't, so I don't think for most ordinary people it's polarizing. I think it is for the metropolitan classes, but I don't think it is for everybody else. I think the bigger problem is, is an issue of competence mm. and that the level of competence in British politics at the moment is pretty low. I mean, one Labour MP said to me, you know, Andrew, I've lived through times when we've had pretty useless governments. I've lived through times when we've had pretty useless oppositions. I've never lived, lived through a time when we have both at once. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's partly to do with who is under leadership at the moment. The fact is, there are not many people in this. The 2010 intake into the British House of Commons, both on the Tory side and the Labour side, was of very high calibre. Mm. But here's what's happened. On the Labour side, that intake were all Social Democrats. So Mr Corbyn doesn't want them in his shadow cabinet. They're not part of the Corbyn cult. They're not the true believers. They're the enemy. On the Tory side, they were very talented. And Mrs May seems to have a complete resolution against promoting young talent. Mm. So they're outside as well. So we may be going through a hiatus at the moment that it will take into the next decade to do. There's not overall a shortage of talent, but there's a shortage of talent on both front benches. Now you mentioned incompetence. You also mentioned uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the socialist leader of the British Labour Party. Mm -hmm. Tell us briefly about this uh, anti-Semitism uh, controversy that's engulfing the Labour Party. Well, again, it's another thing that uh, you know, none of us saw this coming. Uh, that anti-Semitism would become an issue in 2018. And it would become an issue from the left. When I was a kid or at university, anti-Semitism was the, what I would call the knuckle-dragging right. It was the fascist national front or the British National Party. It was skinheads and people with swastikas on their, their knuckles or whatever. Uh, they still exist, but they're frankly, you know, look like a bunch of football hooligans. They have no political, you know, mm. the, B the BNP, got 0.1% of the vote uh, at the last election. That far right is irrelevant, barely exists in Britain. But the far left has an anti-Semitic strain in it. And I think it comes out of uh, a worldview that the West is the source of all evil in the world. And even if there are other evils, they cannot be, that's, these are evils that the West probably created. And in any case, they're not as evil as the West is evil. And that, of course, Israel is a Western country in the Middle East and therefore is evil, mm. uh, particularly given what they think it's done to the Palestinians. And I think this sort of visceral hatred of Israel has tilted into anti-Semitism. And it has unleashed these forces. I mean, you ought to see them. Uh, of what's been said on Twitter and social media, 
for, of members of the Labour Party. Uh, and Mr. Corbyn himself has been criticised, even by his own Corbynistas, for not doing anything like enough to dampen this down. He shared platforms with Holocaust deniers. He has uh, called Hamas and Hezbollah his friends. Hamas and Hezbollah's uh, constitutional founding power is to sweep Israel into the sea. And uh, he keeps on, you know, he laid a wreath, which was supposed to, he said, for the, the bombing of the Israeli bombing of Tunis, but actually was next to the Black September gang that planned the Munich Olympic attack. And there are plenty of others around him who think this way as well, who basically, uh, a lot of the people around him detest Israel. And it's made Jews very nervous. I don't blame them. Uh, people like me try to reassure them that they're not on their own, but they know their own history. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I think what's upset them more than anything else is that if you would see the, I mean, if this happened in the Tory party, whoever the Tory leader would have gone out of their way to machine gun down, mm. you know, just get rid of them. Out, 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 we can't be seen to be tainted, they would have said. But Mr. Corbyn has had to be dragged kicking and screaming to do almost anything about it whatsoever. And that has made people nervous, and it's not going to go away. And Frank Field, one of the sound ministers in the Blair government, he has recently resigned from the Labor Party on this, uh, on this very issue. Uh, and uh, there are clearly a lot of other mainstream Labor voters who are concerned about this. I mean, to what extent could this help uh, uh, bring down Corbyn? It won't bring him down because he now controls the Labor Party. It's a wholly owned subsidiary. And that is extraordinary that that has happened uh, in the course of just five in years. In a way that Michael Foot of the left in the early 80s wow. never did. I mean, he owns the membership. He owns the National Executive Committee. He now owns the party apparatchiks, those yeah. who work full time uh, there. There's going to be a lot, I think, of deselections of moderate MPs. It won't bring them down. And I don't think you'll see the formation of a new center party. I think that's just mission impossible. What you might see is up to 20 defections from the Labour Party to stand separately, knowing they have no chance of power or doing another Social Democrats, but simply with the aim of making sure that Mr. Corbyn doesn't become Prime Minister. He could be brought, not brought down, but he could be denied power by his own people. Right. Okay, now it's question time, and our first question comes from Monica Wilkie, who's one of our scholars in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society program. Monica. Thanks, Tom, and thank you, Mr. Neil, very much for your remarks. You were one of Rupert Burdock's longest-serving broadsheet editors, but you parted ways in 1994. When Mr. Murdoch dies, what do you think will happen to print journalism? Uh, I don't think Mr. Murdoch's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's certainly given no impression that that's his intention. Um, well, I mean, I think Mr. Murdoch's death's got nothing to do with that, uh, with, print, with the future of print journalism. What, what Rupert Murdoch saw very early on, I mean, I've not spoken to him, he's not spoken to me for 25 years, it's been mutually advantageous, uh, <laughs> is that he saw that it, as you move to digital, you still have to charge. That if you're producing journalism that nobody's prepared to pay for, then you're not producing anything that's worthwhile. And just as we've been at The Spectator, so he, with The Times, and then The Wall Street Journal, and The Sunday Times, has said you have to pay. You subscribe, whether you take it in print, in paper, 
or you take it in your iPad or your mobile. We don't care, but either way you pay. And that has turned out to be a huge success. In the Times, Sunday Times now have about 300,000 paying subscriptions, paying 27 pounds a month. The Wall Street Journal has about 2 million digital subscribers. The Financial Times too. Spectator, we have uh, 50,000 people who pay to take both print and uh, the digital. Because I think a magazine is more of a weekend lean back experience and you might still want to have the paper in front of you. I think for newspapers, paper is pretty much going to end. But there is still money to be made, good money to be made. If you can produce something that people are prepared to pay for, I think Murdoch has been a key part of that. I think those who've gone the other way, like The Guardian in Britain or even The Daily Mail, who've gone for eyeballs, gone for volume. You know, we have 160 million unique users every month. That's great, but they're not paying a penny to see it. And you get digital pennies for the advertising uh, on it. So I think the future is, uh, of course, our words have never been more widely read because of digital. Mm -hmm. So I think the future for high quality journalism is great. And people, and, and subscription is the new business model. People aren't going to buy things anymore. They're going to subscribe. Even because Gillette priced its razor blades absurdly high because they thought the brand name was strong enough. A young American entrepreneur said, you know, just subscribe to a razor blade. Tell me how many you need and you'll get them every month. And I think more and more, that's why subscription is the model we use yeah. for the spectator. But let me be, let me, let me be devil's advocate, so, Andrew. I mean, um, a lot of newsrooms have rationalized mm. in the digital era. And increasingly, there are a lot of typos, uh, poor sentence construction sure. that's evident in a lot of copy, and uh, not just in this country, but abroad. Isn't that mm. a problem? Yeah, it is a problem. But I think we're going through a transition period. I mean, at the moment, we are still, we have the capital cost sunk in printing presses which are printing fewer and fewer papers, and therefore it's uneconomic. We need to get to a stage where we can basically junk the printing presses and put the money into the digital side. I mean, we're hiring more people. Uh, the Times has been hiring more people. Mm. In London, there are other newspapers that have handled things very badly that are firing people. I think it's going to be difficult. I think if you're the Times in London, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, uh, the Financial Times, Le Monde, uh, Frankfurter. I think if you're a national brand that wants to be read around the world, you're mm. fine. I think the real problem, this could be a problem in Australia too, if you're the Cincinnati Herald or the Chicago Tribune or the Scotsman or the Yorkshire Post, you don't have a global brand mm. and you can't scale up your subscriptions uh, across the world the way the New York mm. Times can or the Times of... London or the FT. So I do think mm -hmm. money will go to the big brands, not the regional brands. Next question, Rebecca Lawrence is one of our graduates from our Liberty and Society program. Rebecca. Um, you talked about the British government being weak in the Brexit negotiations. There's some speculation that after the summer break, uh, Boris Johnson might make a tilt at the Tory leadership, Australian style. Um, <laughs> If this happens, what are his chances at being successful and uh, is it a good thing mm. if he's successful? Well, you can't do it Australian style because you can't get into a spill in Britain the way you can here. It's much more complicated. So the challenge to 
a, a conservative leader, whether leader of the opposition or prime minister, is that 40 MPs have to write to the sort of shop steward of the Tory 22 committees, the back bench, it's all complicated, it's the back bench committee of, to of Tories. 40 MPs have to write saying they have no longer have confidence in Mrs. May. When that hits the 40, Mrs. They, they then uh, can, they can then call her for a vote of confidence among all the backbenchers. If she loses that vote of confidence, she's out, and she can't run again. If she wins, she can't be challenged for another year. So the people against her are holding back until they see whether they've got the votes or, or not. I mean, they're probably a bit more sensible than Mr. Dutton. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but if she loses, they then throw their hats in the ring. And I tell you, you don't want to be around because people are going to be blinded by the number of hats <laughs> of wannabe Tory leaders who were thrown into the ring. It, the constituency is then only among Tory MPs until you get down to the final two. They all drop out until you're left with two. They go to the membership in the country. And the problem for Mr. Johnson will be his unpopularity among fellow Tory MPs. He may not make it to the final two. Hmm. That's his difficulty. If he makes it to the final two, given his name recognition and that the Tory faithful kind of like him, he would probably win. But if he doesn't make it to the final two, he doesn't get a chance to win. Robert Barry, one of our great long-time supporters. Robert. Andrew, uh, could you comment or give us your views on the future of the euro? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, I think the future of the euro is sound. The issue is never the euro. Indeed, all during the eurozone crisis uh, of 2012, 2013, into 2014, the euro stayed very strong. It was not a euro crisis. It was a eurozone crisis. It was a crisis of monetary union, not of the currency itself. And part of the reason for that is that the world's currency markets assume, I think broadly rightly, that the Bundesbank stands behind the euro, that the Germans are behind it, and that therefore it's never going to collapse in value. Uh, and although it's made only limited progress to become, an inter to, to become a currency of international trade, the dollar's stranglehold in international trade is even stronger than it was 10 years ago. Uh, the currency itself is not the problem. The problem is this. It is that the, the Eurozone is not an optimal currency area. And by that, I, I mean, it's a kind of economic term. By that, I mean it contains too many countries within it who shouldn't all be in a monetary union. Unless you are prepared to do what they have in America. Because, in a sense, New York and Alabama shouldn't be in a currency union. The, the disparity in incomes is huge. They shouldn't be. But America gets rounded because it has a strong fiscal federal budget and federal taxes, and then it has money transfers from the richer states to the poorer states. So it's overall federal taxes, and it transfers money seamlessly. Most Americans don't even know it happens. In Nixon's day, it was called revenue sharing. That would be the solution if you want to keep the Club Med countries in with Germany and Holland and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Belgium and so on. But if you, given, if you just bear, bring back the remarks I made about Germany, 
If you're a German politician who's going to stand up and say, and the way we'll keep the monetary union going is we're going to send 50 billion euros a year from Berlin to Naples, well, good luck to you <laughs> in getting elected. And that's the problem, is that the, the politics... Now, Macron has tried to do this, but because of what happened to Mrs. Merkel, it's become mission impossible. Merkel, uh, Macron wants a Eurozone finance minister. He wants neutralization of debt so that you, the Eurozone as a whole issues the debt, not the individual countries. Uh, he wants the ECB to be a lender of last resort, and he wants fiscal transfers, and he wants a European budget of about 200 billion that would spend in countries to try and bring them up to a common standard. If you believe in the monetary unions as currently constituted, none of that is necessarily wrong. Every part of it is also now politically impossible. So I think the biggest danger the world faces in terms of an economic shock would be if the Eurozone goes back into a recession without any reform at all, because it's in no condition to do so. It has no ammunition in the armory to fight a recession. It can't do any more Q QE. The <coughs> ECB has a third of the Eurozone's GDP on its balance sheet now. That's how much it's issued, a third. Can't do anymore. It's subject to the law of diminishing returns. Budget deficits, fiscal positions are still extended. Italy's national debt is 135% of its GDP. Even France is 95% of GDP. So they haven't got much room on the fiscal side. And my nightmare would be that the Eurozone goes back into recession without any weapons to fight it at a time when unemployment is still very high. And then the hard right forces I was talking about, their day will come. That's uh, the nightmare scenario. It's a bit like Basil Fawlty after that hotel inspector gives him the long list of complaints and Basil says, otherwise, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, Mark McGuire. A Andrew, are there enough young people and fellow travellers in the UK with unlimited, well, the fellow travellers have a knowledge of communism, but young people with unlimited knowledge of communism to elect someone who I've watched in YouTube videos giving lectures at Oxford University with a, f with a belief in a full Marxist-Leninist communist state like Jeremy Corbyn? Uh, no, but that's not why young people are voting for Mr Corbyn. I mean, young people's knowledge of communism is about as uh, extant mm. as their knowledge of feudalism. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't matter. They don't really know what you're talking about. What they do know is that they now leave university with about 40,000 pounds of debt around their necks. What they do know is that it's now harder for them to buy a house than ever before in previous generations. I mean, I was a kid from a council estate who got a decent job. I was able to buy my first flat in London when I was 27. Unless you have the bank of mum and dad now, which I didn't have, uh, you've got no chance of buying your own home, even in a decent job now. You can't do it. Uh, they've never travelled in British Rail, so they think nationalised rail is maybe not such a bad thing. After all, they're nationalised in France and Germany, so why should they be so bad? And 
they look at how things have been stacked up against them, how the best jobs have gone to interns who have already got rich mums and dads who buy their way into internships. They can't afford to do it in London uh, because they can't afford to live there. And they think things are pretty tough for them. And I think they're, they're right to think that. So they vote for Mr. Corbyn because that's the way to protest against the system. They don't really know about communism. They, wouldn't, they never go backpacking to Russia. You know, they're not mm, going to do that. Mm, mm. But they feel that the system isn't great for them. And they may be the first generation in living memory that will be less well off than their parents. Every previous generation was mm. always better off than their parents. So it's a protest vote. It's a vote against the kind of British establishment way of doing things. It's a vote for where we don't quite know where it will lead, but we're going to give you a kick up the backside anyway, because it can't be any worse. Of course, it could be worse. But they don't know that. So I think that's the reason why Mr. Corbyn has massive support among young people. Of course, most young people don't vote. But he may be able to galvanize a bit more of them this time. So it's not a love affair with communism or even socialism. It's a, a desire to kind of just make a protest about the way things are. And for center-right parties, this has a long-term fundamental threat to them. We know from all political science studies that the tilting point when you move from moderate left to right is when you start a family and buy your own home and get a mortgage. Mm. Overwhelmingly in Britain, and I'm sure it's to the same here, if you own your own home, you're overwhelmingly right, likely to vote conservative. If you rent in the social sector, social housing, you're overwhelmingly likely to vote Labour. If you rent in the private sector, which is where more and more young people are being forced into, you are still more likely to vote Labour. And if you've been doing that, if you're still doing that at the age of 40, you'll probably end up a Labour voter for most of the rest of your life. So it has really serious dangers for the Conservatives who have lost their ability to create a property-owning democracy. Home ownership among young people now, and by that I mean 25 to 35 year olds is now at a 50 year low. Now, with that, I'd like to call on my colleague Peter Curdy to deliver the vote of thanks for this evening. Peter. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Andrew. Towards the end of 2016, former Prime Minister John Howard stood here and um, looked back, made some end-of-year comments to, to the membership, and the first thing he said was the best thing that had happened that year for him was that Britain had voted to leave uh, the European Union. He got a round of applause, uh, <laughs> and I uh, applauded too, because at that stage, it looked as though this really was the most positive thing, uh, even though it was very divisive in Britain, of course, but it looked as though this was the most positive thing that could have happened to Britain. Um, Donald Trump had just been elected. We didn't yet know where that was leading. But the, I don't think anybody in the room would have foreseen the extent to which it has become so politically fraught and uncertain and that it has seen the consolidation of a, of a far-left uh, opposition party in Britain and a, a, a teetering conservative party that just seems to become weaker and weaker. Andrew, you have... Um, showed us tonight in such uh, comprehensive terms how the political context has changed uh, over the last two years in particular, 
but your vast experience has helped to identify the very deep roots uh, and, and the long tail, to use your expression, uh, which have given rise, the, the, the roots that have given rise to this changing context. It's been very important, I think, to be reminded not only of the economic background uh, to this change, but the cultural background. The economic uh, roots can be traced to the Lehman Brothers crash, as Andrew has said, and the cultural sense of instability uh, can be traced to concerns about migration and security. These are important factors that continue to hold fast in, in Europe and in Britain in particular. And uh, just last week or so, The Economist reported that the British Social, Social Attitudes Survey shows that the public, the British public, is keener in raising taxes and public spending than at any time since 2006. So this is a change that we are set, I think, to see for some time. And Andrew, your very comprehensive analysis, I think, has been deeply informative. But we've also really appreciated the way in which you've set what feels like to us uh, uncertain and unstable Australian political con uh, situation in a broader context. And that in fact, we do enjoy a great deal of stability. We have enjoyed economic stability, as you've pointed out, for 27 years, give or take. And our culture is stable. The issues of border protection and the issues of uh, a harmonious multicultural society are still ones that, that tax the country, but we do not face that sort of political instability uh, that you have described in, in Britain. We're very grateful to you for coming tonight. It's been marvelous to hear such a vastly experienced commentator and journalist, uh, Tom referred to the four decades uh, of your work, that you're not only deeply steeped in in politics, the political life of Britain and Europe and the world, but also in economic policy. And I think that in, in one of the, it's one of the ways in which I, for me, you stand out as a commentator, that you have such a thorough grasp uh, of economics that you can unsettle uh, even the, um, the, the steeliest of treasurers and finance ministers. So we thank you very much indeed for coming tonight and for sharing your wisdom and your experience, your insights. I think, as Tom said, in some ways it's a, it's a depressing message uh, when we look to see what may happen in Britain and Europe in the coming years. But I think as Australians we can take heart uh, from the reassurance from such a vastly experienced uh, um, commentator as you that, in fact, in this country we have much to be thankful for, and we thank you for that. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well done, mate. That was great. Okay, well, listen, I just want to thank, thank, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Andrew, and thank you, all of you, for being here today. CIS would not exist if it wasn't for your support. Uh, our next event will be September 26th. Uh, it's on inequality. Uh, the unions and their media mates all too often talk about how there's a rotten unfairness in our society and how inequality is getting worse. We'll debate this issue with representatives from the Productivity Commission and ACOS. It'll be chaired by my colleague Simon Cowan. That's here on September 26th. I'd also finally like to thank Peter Wiggs uh, for the wines. He supplied the wines tonight from Eden Road Wines. And again, thank you all. We've got half an hour to drink, be merry, and mingle with Andrew Neil. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. That was great.